Have you ever thought of an episode of your favorite TV show only to turn on your local channel and find that exact episode to be the one airing that night? Sure you must be psychic, right? Unfortunately, the next 10 times you try to use your psychic abilities, you did not yield the same positive result. Okay, so maybe you're not psychic, but there are many people out there who claim that they are. Some use tarot cards, some say they can speak to dead spirits, and some can bend metal with their mind. But this can't be real, right? When was the last time you saw the headline, Psychic Wins the Lottery? The other side of that is, if it wasn't real, why would law enforcement enlist the help of psychics in their investigations? For this episode of the podcast, we are going to discuss the psychic phenomenon. Real? Possibly. Fake? Probably. Some weird? Definitely. Welcome to the Somewhere Podcast, a podcast about strange and unusual stories told by us, a sister and brother team hailing from the island of Newfoundland. I am your co-host, Chrissy. And I am your co-host, Barry. In this episode, we are going to question whether there is such a thing as a real psychic. Yeah, this is one of those topics that I actually go back and forth on. On the one hand, I find it hard to believe that there's someone who has actual real psychic abilities, especially with these mediums and psychics that you see on television. But then on the other hand, I think that it's pretty arrogant of me to think that I know everything and understand everything about what a human is capable of doing. Yeah. So when I think of psychics, there's a couple of things that immediately come to my mind. I don't know about you. Number one, Kresk. Another one is always the Miss Cleo. (laughs) Rest in peace. Yeah. If Miss Cleo was still alive, she should pay us because we have talked about her a few times. Yeah. So she basically was one of those psychic hotlines. She was claiming to be of Jamaican descent and her accent would fade in and out. And she was actually from Cleveland, I believe. Yeah. There are a couple ones that really come to my mind. They really come down to cold reading, I think. Yeah. If you say, do you know anybody with uh, an R in their name? It's like, yeah, almost everyone has an R in their name, you know? Yeah. Do you know anyone who has a vowel in their name? <laughs> but uh, we'll discuss our official position on psychic abilities after this episode. And uh, we've got a couple stories, so let's get it on the go. Okay, here we go. Peter Herkos, Psychic Detective. So even though it surely sounds like it, Peter Herkos, Psychic Detective, was not the title of a Pulp Fiction paperback. This was the name and unofficial title of a Dutch man who acquired supposed psychic abilities after he sustained a head injury at the age of 30. While Herkos cites this injury as the event that gave him his abilities, he may have been predetermined to acquire them at birth. When baby Peter came into the world on May 21, 1911, he did so with the call. So being born with a call, or sometimes it's called being born with a veil, that happens when a baby is born either fully or partially in the amniotic sac. Yeah, we've discussed this in the past. What episode was it? We talked about this in the Vampires episode, Ontario. Vampires, there you go. Yep. It's estimated this happens in about 1 in 80,000 births, and there's all kinds of folklore around people born with a call and the destinies of such people. Some cultures believe that if you're born with a call, you'll never drown. Um, don't know if you could ethically test that scientifically. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Jump off the the, the ferry and see what happens. Uh, Yep, so don't know where that one came from. Um, Other cultures believe that you will most likely become a vampire. That's what we talked about in our Ontario episode. The vampires of Wilco, Ontario. Or Wilno. Wilco is a band. (laughs) No, Wilco is a store. We predated Walmart. Oh, Wilco, yeah. Okay, Wilco is a department store before Walmart. 
Wilco is a band and Will Know is where the vampires live in Ontario. There, we got that straight. There it is. Okay. And then others believe that babies born with a call will be granted the gift of second sight. Ironically, Peter Herkos didn't even have the gift of first sight for the first six months of his life due to complications related to being born with a call. Mm. Nevertheless, he did grow into a healthy yet excitable child. At the age of 14, Herkos was kicked out of school for throwing ink at a teacher. Not seeing a great academic future and probably scared shitless of his parents, Herkos decided to run away. And though it might have fit better in this story to say that he ran away to join the circus, he actually ran away straight to the docks and found a job as a cook's assistant on a ship. Went to sea. Yep, he went off to sea. So I guess life has changed a lot in the past hundred years or so. So I guess it was perfectly acceptable for a 14-year-old boy to just go on a ship and become a cook's assistant. No questions asked. So when was this again? This would have been somewhere about 1925. Yeah, okay. I was going to say throwing ink at someone. How would you throw ink someone on now with these ballpoint pens? I mean, now you throw a laptop at them. <laughs> yeah, I guess when you run away, there's, there's joining the circus, there's joining the military, and there's going on the ships, is it? It's pretty much it. Yeah, those are your options. So he did that for a while, and then at the age of 26, Herkos had enough of that wandering life, so he went back home. He married a woman named Bier. He had two kids, and he started working as a laborer to support his supernormal family in his supernormal Dutch town. That all changed on a fateful day in 1941. Herkos was working as a painter that day. He was four stories upon a ladder when he leaned over just a little bit too far to get that last very hard-to-reach spot when suddenly he lost his balance and fell on his head on the ground below. Nobody was holding the ladder. Safety precautions were not in place. (laughs) The PPE wasn't worn. What's the PPE? Personal protective equipment. Oh, I had no idea what that was. So, yeah, I mean, I guess today if you were up on a ladder, you'd have to have safety straps and a helmet and all kinds of business. But back then it was like, just build yourself a rickety-ass ladder and get up there as best you can. Okay, so he fell on his head from four stories. So this is obviously a very serious situation. Five days later, he woke in the hospital with a killer migraine, extreme sensitivity to light, and psychic powers. Mm, One good thing. One out of three ain't bad, to misquote Meatloaf. (laughs) That's right. Mr. Steinman. So his first vision was all about his son, Benny. His wife, Pierre, came to visit him in the hospital one day, and Herkos was furious that she had left Benny at home surrounded by flames. Calm down, boy, Pierre said, if she was a Newfoundlander. She know Benny is home being well looked after, and you know you got two youngsters, right? But in reality, Pierre was probably just shocked that her husband said, There's flames surrounding our child. In any case, there was no fire, and Benny was safe and sound. Until five days later, when the Herkos house was burned to the ground. Luckily, Benny was okay, and so was the seemingly less important child. The second incident occurred also when he was in the hospital recovering from his massive head injury. There was another patient who was about to be discharged, and he decided to be neighborly and wish Herkos a speedy recovery. So he went over and shook his hand, and Herko said that he felt completely overwhelmed with a terrible feeling that he couldn't quite put his finger on. Two days later, that man was killed by the German soldiers who were occupying the Netherlands at the time. It was World War II. Somehow, in these couple of unverified stories from in the hospital, rumors started that Herkos had these psychic abilities, and people would often come to him for help. And eventually this led to more serious cases like missing and murdered people. And finally, 
his services were sought by several different European police forces. You know, it went from a missed psychic experience that his kid was in a burning house <laughs> to now he's, you know, he's helping out all these different European police departments. Yeah, it's funny, like you said, uh, I had a weird feeling this person died two days later. Next thing you know, the, the police are reaching out to him. Seems a bit of a stretch, but. Yeah, if this was a TV show, there'd be a whole montage in between those two things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, of all, the, all the things he's done, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but in the interest of keeping this, you know, in our desired time frame, I skipped over a bunch of stuff that he did in between. Oh, okay. So, meanwhile, in America, certain people were becoming more and more interested in these so-called psychic abilities, especially as they could be used as a tool for espionage. So this is post-World War II, which is right at the beginning of the Cold War. Yep. The thought was at that time, who knows what bizarre tactics the enemy is going to try to find. You know, we have to get every advantage that we can. Enter American physician and paranormal researcher, Dr. Andrea Puharich. Dr. Puharich had heard about Peter Herkos, and in 1956, he invited him to come to the U.S. to take part in a study that he was conducting in the interest of possibly discovering a way to use psychic abilities as a military application a la Stranger Things. Like, this shit happened. He's 11. He was the older version of 11. By this time, Herkos had split from his wife, and I guess, therefore, his children, so it was great timing for him to bugger off to a new country. If I understand it correctly, he was studied on and off for about seven years, and he was also working in the United States as a professional psychic. Dr. Paharic conducted a bunch of tests where he measured Herkos's brain activities while he was doing such things like guessing what drawings are in envelopes. And in the end, he was sure that Herkos did have actual psychic abilities. Other scientists? Not so much. Nevertheless, Herkos did make a living as a psychic who often worked with police departments to varying degrees of success. Now let's go to a real crime, something that we know for sure did happen. In 1962, the body of a 56-year-old woman named Anna Slessers was found in her Boston apartment. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled with the belt of her bathrobe. By 1964, there were a total of 13 women who were strangled to death in a similar way, and Boston law enforcement and citizens were desperate to find the perpetrator, whom they dubbed the Boston Strangler. Private citizens were so desperate that they offered to pay for the services of Peter Horkos, psychic detective. Whether privately funded or not, Massachusetts Attorney General Edward Brooke did reach out to Herkos for help. Initially, Herkos was reluctant, as he had recently failed to help catch a murderer in Maryland, but he was soon compelled to offer what he could to help. When he arrived in Boston, he was taken to his hotel room. He was presented with a whole bunch of sealed envelopes. And now, if we're to believe the story that was told, Herkos immediately pointed to one of those envelopes and declared that it had absolutely nothing to do with the Boston Strangler case. The officers admitted that they planted this fake envelope in order to test Herkos's ability, which is kind of weird because if you're already bringing a psychic, aren't you already on board with the psychic-ness of him? Yeah. Like, why are you doing that one little test? Anyway, with the fake envelope out of the picture, Herkos went to work. With the evidence before him, Herkos came up with the following information about the perpetrator known as the Boston Strangler. He said, this guy is between 5'7 and 5'8. It wasn't like he was between 5'6 and 6'6. Like, that's pretty accurate. 8'2. Yeah. <laughs> he was between 0 and 100 feet tall. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
with thinning hair and he had some kind of mark on his left arm and a disfigured thumb. He was a gay man who hated women and he was somehow connected to a hospital. That's a little bit of a cold read too because you've either been in a hospital, you were born in a hospital, you've seen a hospital, you know, but whatever. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, the height was there, the mark and the, and the fact that he was gay. I mean, he, he's a... Uh... That's pretty specific stuff. Those are specific things, yes. But then it gets even more particular. He said, The place where this guy lives is a total mess, hoarder style. He says he has a spring bed without a mattress. And when he kills, he sleeps on the springs as penance. When he doesn't kill, he sleeps on a mattress. Somewhere amongst all the junk was a diary where he recorded all the details of his crimes. He said that the victims willingly let him in to their homes, probably because he posed as a shoe salesman. He also had the habit of washing his hands in the toilet. <laughs> so the shoe salesman is an automatic invite to someone's house? So it's 1960-something, and I guess there was a lot of door-to-door salespeople. Like shoes, vacuums, and all that. Exactly, yes. And here's the other thing, right, about the crime scenes of the Boston Strangler. There was no forced entry and there was no burglary. It didn't look like there was a struggle or anything like that. So psychic or not, you probably could infer that he was willingly let into these apartments. But he took it to the next detail of he was posing as a shoe salesman. That was his summary of what they needed to be looking for. That's a good starting point, I think. Yeah, okay. Somehow along the way, Herkos got his hands on a letter from a man who wrote about how he wanted to meet a Catholic nurse and that a particular doctor could vouch for him. I don't know if this was in the evidence. I don't know where he came upon this, but this is part of the story. Somehow he gets this letter. Herkos says this letter was written by the killer. And when he touched the letter, he said, get me a map of Boston. I'm going to be able to show you where the strangler lives. The cops get a map of Boston and immediately he points out this location. This is where you're going to find them. So before the cops can storm a residence of some guy based on a psychic vision, they contacted the doctor that was referenced in that letter. I couldn't imagine that a judge would give a search warrant based on like, oh, the psychic said it was it. So just go look yeah. around, you know. Anyway, so the police talked to this doctor and he said, oh, that guy, he's been a patient of mine forever and he's got some serious mental problems. Okay? okay, so this was something that the police could actually work with, though. Massachusetts law at that time allowed for a person to be detained at a mental health facility if a doctor expressed concern for their well-being. So once they contacted this doctor who was referenced in this letter by this guy who said, I want to meet a Catholic nurse, plus a lot of other weird stuff, the doctor was able to say, I'm concerned about this person's mental state. So they were able to detain the person for some time. And then based on that, they were able to get a search warrant for his place. With the guy out of the way, they kind of were able to look around his whole place pretty thoroughly. And it was uncanny how it was similar to what Herkos had described. The place was a total mess and there was a spring bed with a mattress on the floor nearby. There was also a diary, but it didn't contain the details of any of the crimes attributed to the Boston Strangler. However, police did find a yoga instructional manual, and when they opened it up, they noticed that there were 11 images of women that were blotted out, and at the time of this search, 11 was the number of victims attributed to the Boston Strangler. There was 13 in total, but at the time, they knew of 11. Also, in one of the drawers, the police found a bunch of knotted-up ties and belts. That was the modus operandi of the Boston Strangler. The man was questioned at the mental hospital, 
And he said, well, I used to work as a shoe salesman, but not door to door. So that was kind of another thing that was similar. And when confronted about these blotted out images of these women in the yoga book, he said, oh, that's just weird stuff I do. (laughs) It's a shit a mesh. Peter Herkos was convinced that this man was the Boston Strangler. Clearly, this was him. He wrote the weird letter. I touched it. I saw all the shit he did. And that stuff is in his weird hoarder apartment. That's him. My job here is done. Have a good life, Boston cops. Hmm. The man who was never named, actually, no one ever knows what this person's name is. He was given the choice to leave the mental institution because, you know, he served his minimum time that he had to based on that Massachusetts law that allowed him to confine him temporarily. And he is like, nah. I'm pretty fucking crazy. I think I'll stay here. And he's self-committed. And as far as anybody knows, he's still there. Really? Yes. Nobody knows the name of the person and nobody knows what happened to him after that. However. I'm just going to ride it out. Yeah. He's like, nah, boss, I'm staying here. But that's far from case closed. Anybody who has a casual interest in true crime has at least heard of the Boston Strangler. You know who it was, right? Yes. I don't mean the Boston Strangler. I don't know the intricacies of the story. Okay. And then most people who have a slightly deeper interest in true crime probably know that the Boston Strangler was a man named Albert DeSalvo. If you asked me who was the Boston Strangler 10 minutes ago, I wouldn't have came up with that name. But now that you say it, yes, I've heard that. So clearly, Albert DeSalvo is not an unnamed man who Peter Harkos, psychic detective, said is the Boston Strangler. So why am I telling the story about a potentially true psychic if he didn't actually identify the perpetrator? That's a good question. This is why. About a year after Herkos' involvement in the case, infamous defense lawyer F. Lee Bailey... O.J. Yeah, O.J. Simpson's defense dream team. He was summoned to Bridgewater State Hospital, a Massachusetts hospital for the criminally insane, by his client, George Nasser. F. Lee Bailey wandered on over to the institution to see what was on to go, but Nasser did not require any legal counsel himself. Rather, he called on Bailey to tell him that he has to talk to this fellow inmate by the name of Albert DeSalvo. DeSalvo was in Bridgewater for rape, and the media knew him as the measuring man. His M.O. for this portion of his crime career was to go door-to-door, presenting himself as a representative for a modeling agency. If the women let him in, he would take their measurements and then he would grope them and sometimes sexually assault them. He was a skeevy perv and a piece of shit. Sloppy steaks. (laughs) Yeah. I used to be a piece of shit, (laughs) but this guy was an actual piece of shit. Was he worried that the baby wouldn't be able to change? (laughs) I don't think he was any concern of any babies whatsoever. Uh, After hearing him out, F. Lee Bailey agreed to take convicted rapist... Albert DeSalvo on as a client. Uh, now here's where the Boston Strangler Albert DeSalvo story gets blurry, for me at least. The only evidence that ever supported the theory that DeSalvo was the Strangler was his confession itself. There was absolutely no physical evidence linking him to the crime. When he confessed to the crime, a doctor at Bridgewater Hospital described DeSalvo as a compulsive confessor, and it was thought that he craved the notoriety to be known as the Boston Strangler. So the question was, if DeSalvo was not the Boston Strangler, then how did he know so many details about the crime, including some things that were never released to the public? Conspiracy theorists think that Nasser was the actual Boston Strangler. 
and he fed all those details to DeSalvo, who confessed for the attention. In any case, DeSalvo was put on trial, but not for being the Boston Strangler. He went on trial for crimes that he committed as a different weirdly named criminal called the Green Man. So, so far, he's the measuring man, probably the Boston Strangler, and the Green Man. So the Green Man was responsible for about 400 burglaries and 300 sexual assaults. This guy is a shit. Every night, committing crimes. Yeah, he's got a lot of problems. And the name Green Man was given to him because a lot of his victims said that he wore green pants. That was it. And at this trial, the jury was instructed to disregard any thoughts about DeSalvo's connection or confession to being the Boston Strangler. He was found guilty on 10 of the counts, and he was sentenced to life. In 1973, Albert DeSalvo was stabbed to death in prison, and no one was ever brought to trial for his murder. So where does this leave us in this story? Technically, nobody was ever convicted or even tried for the crimes of being the Boston Strangler, even though people generally assume and agree that Albert DeSalvo was him. He confessed, so he must have been it, right? That's what people think. Well, yeah, the people say, well, he would never say he did it if he didn't do it. Also, you know, that doctor said he's a compulsive confessor. He craves the notoriety. And there's no physical evidence to prove, you know, he was the culprit. It was only his confession it kind of leaves it open, right? So it is possible that the man that Peter Herkos identified as the strangler was the real perpetrator, but he was never tried because he was already committed for the rest of his life to the mental institution. Or is it more likely that Albert DeSalvo, a man who had a history of committing crimes with a similar MO and who confessed with the details that only the killer would have known is the real perpetrator? In 2012, The remains of the Boston Strangler's final victim, Mary Sullivan, was exhumed so that they can extract DNA to get the answer to who was her real killer. What do you think the results showed based on all of this story? I'm going to say that DeSalvo was not the Boston Strangler. The DNA evidence proved with a pretty good deal of certainty that Mary Sullivan's killer was Albert DeSalvo. Oh. Yes. That's disappointing. Kind of, because... Supporters of Herkos and the Boston Strangler conspiracy theorists think that this only really proves that DeSalvo was responsible for that particular crime, but not the other 12 murders necessarily. Is this cognitive dissonance? Like, do you just make the story fit to what you want to believe? Or does it make sense that there were multiple perpetrators? Whoever did it had a similar MO, but were they copycats? There's no full closure for this. Maybe there are multiple stranglers. Maybe there's an unnamed man in a mental institution with an uncomfortable bed who was the real strangler for the other 12 ones. (laughs) You know, who knows? But that's the story of Peter Herkos and the dubious involvement in the identification of the Boston Strangler. It's a weird story. We're going to go from a guy who definitely believed in psychics and that he was psychic to a guy who's like, you're full of shit. It is the story of Amazing Randy, a.k.a. James Randy. Uh, He was a Canadian-American stage magician, born on August 7th, 1928. He was a magician, a escape artist, but he also a self-described magic investigator. He's actually born in Toronto. Uh, He was a very intelligent child. He had a reported IQ in the 160 range. He rarely went to school, but he would show up on test day and basically ace the tests. So that's the kind of smart he was. One day, by luck, he saw a performance by the famous magician by the name of the Great Blackstone. 
Uh, he was fascinated by the way he managed to levitate a woman as part of his act, and he couldn't figure out how he did it. He didn't see any cables or nothing like that. So he, he loved the, the art of deception. So he decided right then and there, that's what he's going to do with his life. He was going to become a magician. So at 17, as we discussed earlier, there's only three things you can do. He left home, ran away, and joined the circus. Really? <laughs> yeah. And basically he said he never went back again. So that was it. He, he just left his family, packed her up, and off he went. He had a stick. He had a bandana, a can of beans in there, I'm assuming. <laughs> yep. Off he went. So, like, I guess anyone in his industry, he idolized Harry Houdini. He was probably the most famous magician or escape artist of all time. And he used to always perform or tried to perform many of his escape stunts. And he would try to do it quicker than Houdini. Houdini also thought psychics and, and all that stuff was bullshit. Oh, yeah, for sure. And he was a very skeptic of it as well. And that's another thing with uh, the Amazing Randy. During his act, one thing he would always do is he let the audience know that magic was for entertainment purposes only. He'd come out and say... Just so you know, I'm a liar, I'm a cheat, I'm a charlatan. This is all a show. This is for entertainment purposes only. I don't have any special powers. Mm -hmm. He was fine with being able to see people for entertainment purposes. But when people tried to pass it on as they actually had these abilities, these psychic abilities, he didn't like that. And he went out of his way to try and expose these people. So when you think about it, people who say they have these powers and certain ones that they have, they try to prey on vulnerable people when they're down, right? You know, a common example would be uh, someone who recently, a loved one passed away. So they go talk to some psychic and they're like, oh yeah, he misses you or she misses you, blah, blah, blah. They say something very vague and the other person, you know, references that, oh, that must be the picnic we took 52 years ago. Yes, yes, that's it. Coming up with very generalizations that people are putting the two and two together to make it sound like it's actually something, right? So he didn't like that. Uh, he would go to great lengths to try to expose these trips that people claim to have so-called powers, especially when they played on people's emotions. A couple of examples here. The first one, Peter Popoff. Have you ever heard of this gentleman before? No. So he is a televangelist and a faith healer. Very popular in the 1980s. He claimed that God would reveal information to him about people in the audience who were suffering from some sort of medical issue. And through the power of Christ, uh, he would drive the devil out of them and drive the cancer or, or the illness right out of these people's body. He'd be looking at the audience. He's, oh, God is telling me Barry is in the audience. And Barry has... <laughs> He's got the gout. He's limping down. Oh, Jesus is going to get rid of the gout. And then I start running Kevin around. is in the audience. And Kevin has to croup. <laughs> That's right. And he bald. <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah, wave over wave, everybody. Listen to that song. We've discussed it in the past. <laughs> that should be our theme song if we had any money to buy it. But anyway, after you do all these quote-unquote healings, they start passing around buckets and collection plates and said, you know, whatever you give, you'll get back tenfold. I hate that so much. But anyway, I'm listening. I hate that kind of stuff too, right? And so did the great Randy. So he did not believe Papa had these powers to speak to God. So he said that to expose him. He actually considered him a dangerous man because, you know, you're telling somebody who got cancer, you don't need to go to the doctor anymore because I just cured you. You know, the guy dies because he's listened to this parlor show, right? Yep. So Randy would routinely attend Popoff's show to try and figure out his tricks. And one time they noticed that he was wearing a hearing aid in one of his ears. So Randy was like, well... This guy can cure people who are deaf. Why is he wearing a hearing aid? So he quickly realized it was a communications device. So he hired a private investigator to see if they can intercept a radio transmission. And what it turns out was that Popov's wife used to feed information to him about people's names, addresses, and ailments from prayer cards that were distributed to the audience prior to the show. So he went on Johnny Carson's show and just basically showed a video of Popov healing people, then showed the same video with his wife feeding them all the information. Did Pop-Off guy ever know about it or reply or respond in any way? 
Well, he denied it. He he did say he did have a radio, but it was not used for that. Sometimes he couldn't hear the names well enough or whatever it was. Wait, hang on. Did he say, yes, we have a radio. Yes, my wife feeds me the information. But sometimes I can't hear the names quite clearly. So obviously I'm doing this for reals. No, it was more like uh, that was the aid that helped him. But no, he still said it was divine intervention. Okay. And he actually had a bit of a revival lately. He's you ever see these people on TV that are selling this like vials of, of super holy water or something like that? Or oh, he's one of these guys. No, nope, don't know that crowd. I don't watch that channel, whatever that is. But anyway, so that's one of the ones that he kind of exposed. So another one he actually tried to prove as a fraud was a guy by the name of Yuri Geller. Ever heard of Yuri Geller before? He's the spoon guy, right? He is the spoon guy, yeah. So Yuri Geller claimed to have psychokinetic powers and can bend spoons with his mind. So this ability attracted the attention of the military and staff from the university started doing experiments on him because they said, some guy can actually do this. There's probably some military application for it. So Stafford University commissioned a full-fledged scientific research on him just to see if the story was bullshit or not. And surprisingly, the results of these experiments included that he, in fact, had psychokinetic abilities. Okay. So these scientists saw him doing his spoon-bending acts and going into another room and drawing pictures that was in the other room that someone else had. And he had this other ability where it'd be like uh, 10 cylinders there, like these metal cylinders, and it'd be like a pinball in one of them. And he'd always be able to tell which one had the pinball. So this baffled uh, Randy. He's wondering, how can scientists fall for these simple parlor tricks? <laughs> He's so real, this Randy guy. Yeah, exactly. So he went to expose Yuri. So Yuri would go on these talk shows and demonstrate these tricks. Uh, Randy would go on the show and say, this is all bullshit. And he'd do the exact same thing and do it as well. Okay. One night, uh, Yuri was scheduled to be on Johnny Carson. He was the guy, right? He was the king of late night television. And, and you didn't make it until you're on Johnny Carson. Johnny Carson's people called Amazing Randy that night and asked him if he could be on the show as well with this guy. But Randy couldn't make it. But he spoke to Carson's uh, prop man and told him to do a few different things. And if this guy can do what he says he can do, then it should matter that all the things that make the trick work, he had the props manipulated so that wouldn't happen. Oh, I see. It was the one where he had the 10 metal cans and they had a ball in one of them. So he had to pick out which one had the ball. So the guy was sitting there for 20 minutes staring at these things. And he couldn't figure it out. And apparently they went on a long commercial break and all this. And he's, oh, take your time, blah, blah, blah. Then afterwards, he finally came out. Yuri said, boy, I'm not strong enough tonight. I, I just can't uh, I just can't feel the power of it tonight. Oh, wow. That's one thing about Amazing Randy, too. Was like He never did say that these people couldn't do it. He just knew the tricks that they did to do it. So he said, well, I'll take these away. So if you can really do these things, then it shouldn't matter if we set the trick up a different way, right? Yeah, it makes sense. If you really have these abilities... You should be able to do it under any circumstance, not just your own controlled circumstance. So Randy figured that Yuri was debunked and he was ruined. But uh, whatever reason, he kept on, it kind of just blew past him. And uh, he got on another show, he was on Merv Griffith, and he started doing all this parlor trick stuff again. And everyone okay. started to believe him and he became more and more popular. So amazing, Randy, he devised a plan. Stafford University was looking to do research on other subjects that claimed to have the same powers as Yuri. Randy managed to get two marks in this study and taught them all the tricks. He then wrote to people conducting the experiments and gave them a list of 11 conditions that would make sure the subjects would adhere to that would make the tricks harder. Without telling them what the tricks were, he set it up so that if they were trying to do the parlor tricks, it wouldn't work. But if they could actually do it, I guess it doesn't matter what the conditions were, right? So Randy's men managed to allow the scientists to relax some of these conditions, and then they started figuring out ways to do the tricks around these conditions, right? Okay. They would then report back to Randy, and then Randy would reach out again and tell them to impose additional conditions based on the results of the previous day. So this experiment was done over a period of four years and 180 hours. So the scientists were leaning toward the conclusion that these individuals had the same powers as Yuri. 
the BBC was planning on doing a documentary on these guys, right? So the director of this BBC documentary was given the, the list of the original living conditions set out by Randy. But the documentarian was very strict about these rules. Where the other guys, they managed to talk to scientists out of bending a couple of rules, and that's how they actually pulled off the tricks. So during the six hours of filming, they couldn't once film these guys bending spoons or doing anything psychokinetic. So as soon as the director left, all of a sudden they're bending spoons all over the place because the guy wasn't watching these 11 the things that Randy set out of him, right? So the stunt culminated in an event whereby the two subjects revealed it was all fake. So again, the scientists, obviously, they felt like pretty dumb, right? Yeah, well, nobody wants to be made to look to be a fool. Yeah. A third time, the amazing Randy wanted to debunk various psychics was the people that claimed they could speak to dead people and mediums, channelers, whatever you want to call them. So the amazing Randy recruited the services of a man by the name of Jose Alvarez. They decided to come up with a scam where they present Jose as a channeler for a 30,000-year-old man named Carlos who spoke to people through Jose. Randy made a bunch of fake press releases and sent them to various media outlets in Australia. In these releases, he showed a bunch of venues Carlos performed at in the United States. The shows and venues are both fake, and it could easily be proven to be fake if anyone took the time to check in on it. So instead of people checking on it, eight different media outlets reached out to Carlos to book interviews for him for his Australia tour. Part of the scam did the exact same thing they did as Pop-Off did. Uh, Randy would be offset with the microphone and Carlos would be on set getting interviewed or doing his little show and he'd have an earpiece in and, and the amazing Randy would tell him how to act to try and portray to be one of these channelers that do this thing. People bought the act and they actually had a show at the Opera House in Australia and they sold it out. Oh, that's a big venue. Yeah. So again, after the Australian tour and he did all these things saying that he was the 30,000-year-old man and he was being channeled through Jose... They did a press conference that it was all a hoax just to prove that this stuff is bullshit. It seems to be a very elaborate way to prove it, but... Still, in the story so far that you're telling me, though, the amazing Randy has proven that you can do tricks to make people believe stuff, but not necessarily that psychics don't exist. Yeah, and he was very adamant on that. He says he doesn't say they don't exist. Yeah. But he is saying that throughout history, there's a lot of people that can deceive people into thinking that they can do it. So again, these are a few examples how the great Randy debunked the so-called real psychics. And one of the things that's interesting is that Penn and Teller were very big fans of him. And they say that their act never would have been the way it was if it wasn't for the influence of the great Randy. I don't know about you, but I'm a big fan of what he's done. I'm all for illusions of magic, and I'm all for the entertainment side of it. But when people try to use parlor tricks to trick money out of people, or to try to play in their vulnerable emotions, or try to say, you know, you got a severe illness, but I can fix that by, you know, pretending to pull cancer out of your stomach and all that kind of stuff. I'm glad that somebody would go out of the way to debunk that bullshit, right? Oh, 100% agree with you. It's all fun and games until someone loses their life savings and life. That's it. Psychics, are they real or not? I'd say not. Yeah, I'm going to say not completely close to the idea, but if anybody had these powers, we'd know about them now and they wouldn't be used to be bending spoons. They'd be doing something a little bit more uh, productive than that. How about this? You're only allowed to say yes or no. Are there psychics? Yes or no? No. Agree. No. So what do you think of it all, listeners? Has anyone out there really actually think you've had a true psychic experience? If you have, let us know about it. Somewerepodcast at gmail.com. Or on the Twitter at somewerepod. Or you can message us directly from our website, somewerepodcast.com. If you haven't done so already, please follow or subscribe wherever you listen so you'll never miss an episode. And if you like the podcast, please help us grow by leaving us a five-star review wherever you listen. And don't be afraid to tell a friend about the Somewhere Podcast. Or just psychic 
psychically reach out to them if you've got these talents. That's right. Uh, I hear you listen to podcasts. Um, <laughs> the Newfoundland. I don't know what they're saying half the time. But That's anyway. Right. <laughs> the only other thing I got to say, real psychics are some weird by. Some weird. Can you hear Harper barking? Bow, bow, bow. John Cena barks. If your dog was barking during this part, I would leave it. You can just silence me out. Yeah. yeah. You can't silence the, the storyteller out. No. Just five minutes of silence. And that's the story. <laughs> so you want to be on the podcast? Yeah. Do you believe in psychics? Yes. Why is that? Because um, anything is possible. That's okay. There you go.